Hello, this is episode 304 and this is part two of my conversation with Jenna Cohen from Honeycomb Access and Design. Now, if you haven't listened to part one of the conversation, make sure you head back to episode 303 and catch up as this episode will make much more sense if you do. So you can find that episode and a free downloadable transcript by heading to www.undercoverarctic.com forward slash 303. In part two of my conversation, we jump straight into my question about performance solutions This will be an approval pathway to familiarise yourself with in your project. And I spoke about these with Laura Tanova from Deem to Perform in episode 290, which I'll also pop a link to in the resources. It's really great to hear Jenna's take on this process in this episode though, and what she's specifically seeing in how her clients are needing support and help in their projects with performance solutions. She also shares some specific examples related to these livable housing updates to the NCC 2022. Plus, Jenna will also share what she believes are the no-brainer inclusions when designing your home so that it can support you long-term and be adaptable and flexible to your changing needs over time. These are really great suggestions for anyone planning their renovation or new build. Now, remember, if you'd like to grab a full transcript of this episode, plus information on the resources that we discuss, you can do that by heading to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 304. That's the numbers 304. Now... Let's dive in. I begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of country throughout Australia, and I recognise the continuing connection to lands, waters, skies and communities. I pay my respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to elders both past and present. If we haven't met before, I'm Amelia Lee, the architect behind Undercover Architect. Based in northern New South Wales, Australia, I'm a wife, mum and architect, and I've been working in the architectural industry since 1993. I founded Undercover Architect in mid-2014, and since then, it has operated online to help and teach homeowners like you how to get it right when designing, building or renovating your home. Undercover Architect supports hundreds of thousands of homeowners across the world through their project journeys via this podcast, the website and our online courses and programs, including my flagship online program, Home Method. Consider Undercover Architect your secret ally. Whoever you're working with and whatever your dreams, your location or your budget, it's here to support and guide you on this ambitious journey of yours. Grab access to my free online workshop, Your Project Plan, and learn super helpful information to save time, money, and stress in your reno or new build. You can find it at www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash project plan. That's P-R-O-J-E-C-T-P-L-A-N. Now let's get into the episode. Before I start, let me remind you about Jenna. So Jenna is the Director of Honeycomb Access and Design, an access consulting firm that supports construction professionals to create beautiful, accessible and compliant designs. Jenna is also the co-founder of Flying Fox, an impactful not-for-profit organisation that provides social sleepaway programs, connecting over 1,500 young people with and without disability. Honeycomb services a range of project typologies from educational institutions to transportation hubs, healthcare facilities, retail spaces and residential and commercial developments. And Jenna has led large-scale projects worldwide and a career highlight working with a global company in Japan and South Korea. Jenna is an accredited access consultant, registered LHA, SDA and LHA NCC assessor. Jenna is also a member of the Accessibility Committee of the Australian Institute of Architects and consulting researcher at Melbourne University working to enhance Australian accessibility standards. And at the time of recording this episode, she's also about to be registered as an architect. It's a lot, isn't it? She's very 
very impressive. So let's jump into my conversation with Jenna now. And that's what I really wanted to go on to next because I know that you work with people doing performance solutions. And so I'd love if you could actually just talk us through performance solutions. You know, how do you consult on these? What does it look like in the process for a client? You know, how and when and, you know, when do you jump in and get involved? What's your role and how does all of that work when you're providing performance solutions um, as as a as a consultant? Yeah, sure. So performance solutions, I think Laura t- talks about this in her podcast. They are commercially generally seen as something that is done at the end of a project when something's gone wrong, but they very much something that can be designed in from the beginning and not as a loophole, but as a reasonable way to satisfy the requirements of, of the BCA. So I think there's just that is important to note. The difference between LHA and these standards is that LHA is not referenced in the NCC. And so you can't, with LHA, it's either satisfied or not satisfied. There's no kind of flexibility around around that. Um, whereas these standards, there is that there is that flexibility of having either the deemed to satisfy your D- DTF solution or a performance solution or a mix of the two. So I think that is reassuring in that, you know, there could be situations where we do need them. So as we said, a steep site would just be an exemption. So that's not a performance solution, but there could be some gray areas where maybe you're on a floodplain and so your site isn't necessarily steep, but the requirements of your site are such that you can't just have a flat, step-free or slightly ramped pathway to your front door. So I can foresee there being some performance solutions around that. Maybe you don't have space for a garage. So your garage, you know, because if you are on a floodplain, you could have your carport um, elevated and your house also slightly elevated and you'd have steps to your front door for that floodplain. But then your carport would be your access path. But if you don't have space for that carport, yeah. So that's an example of, of somewhere I think that there'd be some flexibility. Also, let's say you do have space for a ramped pathway to your front door, but the landing for that ramp doesn't fit within the boundary of your site. So the landing has to be on the footpath. Um, I think that would be a really reasonable way to go about it with a performance solution. Maybe your threshold ramp at your front door was slightly outside the door jam. That would be one to, to consider. Or if you had a toilet provided, but it was on an upper level, but you had a lift to that toilet. So I don't know, maybe you've got a really skinny site and it's six levels. Um, then I, I think a consideration of a performance solution would be reasonable for that sort of feature as well. I think there'll be a lot more that come about as time, you know, moves on and we see the implementation of these standards. Um, performance solutions are those are really something that we kind of do and learn as we go so I think that you know time will tell and it is important to know that it does depend on your certifier or surveyor so if a homeowner or a client contacts me and says oh we've got this tricky problem or this is our situation I would assess the you know whether it's reasonable and viable to provide that performance solution but beyond myself and the client, the certifier or the surveyor has to be on board as well because at the end of the day, they're accepting it and signing off on it. So it's really a conversation with everyone. And the last couple of years, the process for performance solutions 
um, has, has reflected that. So there are two parts to providing a performance solution. The first part is a brief and that pretty much establishes, you know, what are we doing? What's our approach? Uh, what are the conditions going to be for that? And then every all the stakeholders have to sign that brief and then the final report is prepared that goes to the certifier or the surveyor to, to approve. And so do you find that homeowners are getting ahead of this? Like are they working with their team and saying, okay, because I know Laura spoke about the fact that you might decide that you want to avoid a performance solution to try and create a simple pathway through your project, but you're, you you may find that that actually doesn't optimise what's possible for your project if you make that choice. And so trying to avoid a performance solution just because it seems like a headache may not be the best way to navigate your project and achieve a great design outcome. And so in terms of it not being that binary, not being that black and white for people and thinking, okay, well, I'm I'm going to embark on this project for this new home. And I know that we've got, you know, say we've got a floodplain or we've got an overland flow path that goes through the back of our site, but I'm not sure if it'll impact us considerably, or we know that we want to do something a little bit different with our car accommodation or, um, you know, the myriad of other things that can trigger um, performance solutions. Are you seeing that... Like I've definitely seen a very steep incline in the conversations about them in the architectural online networks that I'm in, where architects are going, oh, you know, oh, geez, I've I've got this client and I've been working with them on their project and we've been chatting to the certifier or the surveyor and they're saying that we need a performance solution for this. I didn't need this previously. What are other people's feelings about this? Or, you know, there was a thread going where people were actually just architects were listing out what was being identified as performance solutions in their projects so we could start to see the variety of of the different things that were triggering it. And Laura, of course, touched on some of those and you've just touched on some of those. I think how are you seeing homeowners kind of like when do you get the call and is it a panicked call or are you finding that people are starting to get on the front foot about this? They're working with their teams. Their teams are are really kind of seeing that this is something that they now need to consider as another layer on how they design stuff. Like how are you in the role that you you play seeing how this gets accommodated into the process? I'd say, yeah, 80% are those panicked calls of, you know, I got one last night, I've screwed up, I need you to unscrew. <laughs> um, <laughs> unscrew, unscrew my but, screw up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'd say most are kind of retrospective Um and look, I think that is because DTS is seen to be, you know, this is the way to do it and we should aim for that. I think that, yeah, the thing that, that does irk me or the thing that I try avoid just um, saying yes to are the ones that people are using because they know it's a loophole or they, they know that it's a way to do something and they've done the cost assessment and it's going to be cheaper to have the report for X rather than designing out Y. And so we know we can just rely on that. But I think having the conversation early on with good reason and, you know, for space, for efficiency, for in some cases, performance solutions are used to increase access, which is pretty ironic. Or I think a really good example of one which doesn't apply to residences, but um, signage at the moment. So the NCC doesn't have provision for gender neutral signage. But if you're having a commercial building and you've got toilets, you have to have male and you have to have female signage. So 
without getting in, into that too too much. Um, that's a performance solution. But let's say you've got a unisex accessible toilet. And so calling that toilet an all-gender accessible toilet, that would be a performance solution. But that'd be one that we would, you know, totally accept and we'd say that that increases the inclusion. Or, yeah, sometimes like automating a door to have a slightly reduced latch side clearance, that would be a performance solution. But I'd say in most cases, you know, let's say it's five mils or 10 mils of a reduction of the latch side clearance, but automating that door would be a, a, a much um, better solution for everyone. Yeah, it is, it is um, definitely about intention. And I, I definitely try to really make sure that what we do is, you know, morally and ethically good and making sure that we're maintaining the best outcomes for everyone from, from the beginning, not just using them to address loopholes or, yeah. I think cost savings is definitely, is a definitely a reasonable consideration. You know, if someone's going to be out of pocket hundreds of thousands of dollars for something, um, and there is a performance solution to address something that's going to be reasonable, then I, I do think, you know, there is sort of that unjustified hardship uh, route. But yeah, it's one of those things that it does just depend on patterns and trends and precedents. So there'll be an example of one and then we know that that's happened and we see how it plays out and then we can adapt and, and, and use that for future projects as well. Do they get built as a library somewhere? Like, I feel like there should be this online resource of like, there okay. is, there is, <laughs> there is one circulating for um one industry, but I won't talk, I won't talk too much. To it. <laughs> it does, it does feel like there should just be this great big list somewhere of we found this, this is the performance solution, this is the pathway that we took, you know, and I, I like, I, I find it fascinating that that you you said that people are potentially using them for trying to trying to exercise that loophole avenue, determining that the consultant fees uh, of the performance solution and the the hoops that they might have to jump to are going to be more economical than actually doing the right thing on the project. Yes, which... or aesthetic, I should say. So some people know, oh, you know, um, I know that aesthetically the handrail looks better like this and I know I can get a performance solution for it. So I'm just going to design it in and yeah, often people will do first and apologize later. So they'll just do it and then call me and say, but it's done. You're not going to make me rip up the entire stair, are you? Oh, wow. You know? So yeah. it's that sort of approach. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I just go, who's going to be using this? How are they going to be impacted? If it's for the better or equal and equitable, then cool, we'll consider it. You know, hand over heart if it's, if it's going to be an okay or a good solution for the built environment then we'll, we'll look into it for sure. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. So um, thank you for taking us through that because I think that it's really great for homeowners to see like these performance solutions have obviously been floating around in commercial and larger scale projects for some time. It's just that they're now filtering down and I think largely being driven by a desire for greater risk management, greater, you know, we've obviously seen what happens when we don't have all of the checks and balances in place and people... Mm people come up with solutions that don't have this level of risk management documented through the process. And I remember like being at Mervac and uh, when they introduced uh, design risk as one of our requirements and us having to actually navigate that as part of a project um, milestone was actually, you know, assessing what risks you literally had to go through the design, you know, 
piece by piece and go, okay, well, this is a little bit different to what we were traditionally to do. So what is the what are the risks that could come of this and how are we mitigating those risks? Um, you know, what are we what are we going to do? And does that mean that the user is going to need more information about how they use that space so that they're not exposed to that risk on a day-to-day basis? And I think, you know, it's I know that a lot of architects and designers can, and builders can get very frustrated that it just seems like a heck of a lot more responsibility to take on and a whole heap more red tape. That is so worth it. Like the the longevity and the life cycle of that design that's had that thought, you, um, yeah, you benefit so greatly into the future. So most definitely. Yeah, I, I think we are lucky in Australia to have, <laughs> it sounds funny because it is annoying, but it, we are very lucky to have all these standards and requirements and, I, I definitely believe that they can be better and we need to do better and we are we are behind. But I think having them there does mean that we are more careful and hopefully have safer and better homes and buildings. Um, yeah, that lasts that last longer. Yeah, and our, and the people who use the spaces that we design shouldn't need a user manual in order to use it safely. So <laughs> you know, yes. it's that thing of it's that thing of ensuring that we. I think it's just, it's owning the responsibility and how many areas it does impact when you do create spaces and places for people. So I think it's, um, yeah, I think it's definitely very valid. So there's obviously the the livable housing design standard and then the ABCB has also published the voluntary standard, which is kind of going above the minimum standards you were talking about. Um, But there's also the livable housing design handbook. So that is a longer document which goes into detail and there's actually in one of the appendix uh, there's a little diagram of what I was talking about with that bathroom situation where the toilet's not in the corner. So there are other tools to help us kind of get through this transition. But yeah, I think within, you know, 12 months to 18 months, we're not going to need to refer to these guides in detail. We're just going to know intuitively or I'll be able to scan a design and say, you know, change this, do that. The rest is great, you know. So I think yeah, leaning on consultants and specialists in the beginning will be really helpful to just make sure we're all going into this with um, as much knowledge and and consideration as possible. And yeah, there's going to be little transition, but I think moving moving forward, it will be it will become really natural and easy for us to do. Fantastic. Now, I'm just wondering if you can take through, us through what some of the non-negotiables you might think that homeowners should consider when they're designing their new build or renovation to make it more inclusive, to help them obviously welcome people who might have physical disabilities or um, special needs to come into their home or when they want to think about their own longevity um, and life situation in their home as well. Things that potentially might go beyond compliance, uh, but are just really great kind of no-brainers that they um, do make a significant impact on on and improve the quality and lifestyle in their home long-term. Yeah, sure. So in terms of layout, I'd say thinking about having some sort of room and bathroom with with shower um, or bath facilities on the ground floor is a good one to think about. So even if you want all your bedrooms upstairs, to think about having a study or a guest room that has a bathroom on the ground floor that can be the bedroom into the future. I think it means that when you can't use stairs to go upstairs, um, when you do get older, you can you can move downstairs and live in your home longer. I'd say if the home is quite large, provision for a lift, even if you don't put in the lift, it's just somewhere that maybe is a storeroom or a a really large laundry chute or something that 
um, has the space for a lift to go in in the future because lifts are getting cheaper as you know technology is advancing but the cost is is normally you know greatly affected by the structural and the spatial constraints of a of an existing home so those would be kind of the bigger the bigger ones this step-free pathway I think as I said is going to be a really positive thing for everyone um, for future homes for resale for changing families so I think that that is a really good thing that's being instituted so we don't have to kind of ask people to consider it but it's going to be a requirement so that's really good I think the other thing is provision for technology and technological assistance um, and assistive technology I should say for example, it might not cost anything more to just have wiring to a door that can become automated. Automating that door might be a few thousand dollars, but provision for automation would be nothing. You know, if you're doing electrical from, from scratch, if it's a new build. So provision for things like that um, in the kitchen as well. So being able to change your counters to have height adjustable counters and portions in some areas and just, yeah, making the smart, making the home smarter so even provision for automation of blinds lights connecting to a whole system I think technology can be really amazing in making our homes more inclusive but then also having some sort of manual override because it doesn't suit every family depending on dexterity or just power outages or many other reasons if you don't want to use technology or if your family doesn't always need want to have technology Say lighting is an interesting one. You know, we have the ability to provide as much lighting as we want in terms of artificial lighting, but natural lighting is a bit harder to to just add. So I think really thinking about natural lighting and glare is is important. I think glare can be so disturbing and uncomfortable for people. So if you've got a corridor, you know, making the end of that corridor one large window could be really disturbing. But if you had lights like clerestory lights or windows that were higher up and you had skylights and things like that bringing in a lot of natural light but without the glare is a great addition you know you can always close windows you can always add blinds and things but knocking out holes to make windows is a bit it's a bit harder and I think the reinforcing of walls in bathrooms and wet areas is is a really good consideration so even if you've got a bathroom upstairs like say an ensuite to a to a room upstairs um, and you don't require reinforcing those walls because LH or the livable housing standards don't require that, um, I would consider doing that because you might want to add a grab rail um, and the suction grab rails that go into the tiles are just quite unsafe. So, um, <laughs> you don't want to put yeah, your full body weight on those, do you? <laughs> no. So, you know, let's say you are injured and you do want to have a grab rail installed, then, yeah, having the walls already being able to withstand that force would be good. Yeah, I think those those would be some, I'm sure there's there's a million other things to think about for to consider, but I think adaptability is a really big topic, you know, to think about how we can age in place and adapt our homes to suit our changing needs into the future. I'm sure there'll be something to consider for, you know, how we can have robots move around the house in, um, in probably, you know, a year's time or some people you know, prioritise privacy, others prioritise functionality. Some people want to put their laundry upstairs because all the bedrooms are upstairs. So you can just, you know, do the laundry and then fold it and deliver it to all the rooms whilst you're upstairs. But then that doesn't really accommodate for if you have to move downstairs into the future. Depends on the family and depends on the situation, but um, lots to think about. 
the the laundry upstairs is an interesting one actually because I know it's very common in the states for the laundry to be on the upper floor, but they tend to use dryers more than to obviously dry all of their clothing yeah. um, and sheets and things like that than we do in Australia. Yeah. Mm. So, and I know that I've I've had homeowners who've said. I don't hang my washing on a line. I want to be able to, you know, but I, I've been chatting to my builder and my designer about putting my laundry upstairs because it's where all the bed linen is and it's where all our, our clothing is and they think that I'm crazy. And yes. it's, yeah, it's quite interesting to sort of see the differences. And I mean, that that conversation about thinking about the bedroom or the study on the lower floor is a great one. I know that uh, when I worked at Mervac, we often would do house designs that had that that space on the ground floor and the full bathroom on the ground floor in some of the design options so that there was a possibility for people to, um, when they were looking at a development, to buy a house like that if they knew that they were going to want to live on one level. And I've, you know, I've worked with lots of clients who have, you know, been downsizing and they've known that their grandkids and family are still going to come and stay with them for long periods or they might even have, you know, a kid in their 20s move back in, but they've wanted to be able to make the home work just on one level um, so that they can make sure that it's fully accessible for them and they're not having to navigate stairs on a daily basis. And I mean, it's even worked. I've had I've spoken to homeowners who who just had a really challenging first trimester in their pregnancy and they couldn't, you know, they just needed to be right near a bathroom and they just were so physically um, impacted by it that having a room to sleep on the lower floor and, you know, it just everything, them not having to navigate stairs on a daily basis was really what worked for them. So it is that thing. I know that when my when I was on crutches for seven months, it would have been really great to just be not have to navigate have stairs. Have an option for, a, yeah. yeah, to not have to sleep on the couch. Yeah. Yeah. I was living in a, in a, ter- I, was, I was living out of home in a terrace house in Surrey Hills that had a very narrow staircase. <laughs> I was often navigating on my bum. So, yeah. <laughs> so oh my gosh. Uh, now yeah. I'm really fascinated because it does seem like you live between two worlds. You've got architectural qualifications. You're about to get registered as an architect, which is no mean feat. That's a big undertaking and, you know, huge that you're on the cusp of being able to have that achievement in your career. And then you're consulting on design as well. And you're, you know, you've got this whole area of specialty in, in uh, accessibility. So, how do you feel like your knowledge and your training as an architect and that design thinking that you you know that that we spend a lot of time at university learning helps you actually approach the design solutions to improve accessibility and having sort of seeing design through that lens how do you see that as opposed to somebody who becomes an accessibility consultant doesn't necessarily they might have come from an occupational health background or you know those kinds of things very different approach that i imagine that you have yeah for sure look i i find it super helpful for me to be able to problem solve with clients rather than just explain the requirements. I can also appreciate design decisions and really make an effort to maintain the aesthetic intentions alongside those functional outcomes. So yeah, I really believe that accessible design can be beautiful. You know, we just have to be creative and open-minded and think a little bit more I really I, I I really use my design skills in every conversation and every job I do I, I was just on a phone call before this someone called me to ask about a ramp and a landing and handrails and instead of just quoting the clauses and and you know just overlaying that I I said you know send me this sketch and I'll look at it and we'll try come up with something so I'm problem solving all the time and you know, I, I call it toilet Tetris when you have to fit 
the right amount of toilets in the space that you've got. So I love playing toilet Tetris and yeah, it's really a collaboration, I think. So I find it yeah very helpful to have the the knowledge and that and yeah the, the qualification um, of architecture and I love working with architects and homeowners to sit with them to draw to see a concept and then see that evolve into something that is constructed and built and then lived in and enjoyed yeah I I think that um, your skill set must add so much value to a team and to the process in terms of being able to see it through that design problem solving process. So I think it's, yeah, I think you must be an incredible asset to the people that you're working with who aren't just having somebody come at them with a bunch, as you say, of the legislation, you must comply with this and this is what it's got to look like. But how do we actually, how do we actually achieve the goals that you have and have it do what it needs to from an accessibility point of view? Before we wrap up, is there anything that you wanted to mention before we finish? Oh, lots to mention. (laughs) (laughs) I think, um, no, I think, I think, to summarise, you know, these changes are going to be, you know, daunting for some and, you know, just another thing to add to the list of things to consider for your new home, which is already probably so stressful. But I think having you guide someone through a renovation will make all of that a lot easier. And I think, yeah, just to know that these standards um, aren't as scary as they might appear. I'm always open to a chat, to an email, to a sketch, so yeah, feel free to reach out if you've got any questions. And yeah, I'm really excited to see how this how this standard evolves and impacts the Australian housing market as well. So I think it's a really good move, a small step in the right direction. Um, and hopefully in the future we'll have a lot more accessible homes, more available stock, and yeah, um, overall a more inclusive society. So we're getting there slowly. It's absolutely fantastic. Jenna, thank you so much for your time. It's been so awesome to have you here on the podcast. And I know that um, I know that, that what you've shared is going to be super helpful for people in thinking about how they're going to adopt these uh, requirements into their homes that they're creating and to think what they might want to do beyond the code in order to set their home up for greater livability, to help them be able to make it more inclusive, make it more accessible, to deal with those situations that life might throw at them or to be able to support uh, family members, friends and those kinds of things in their own needs. So I can't thank you enough for being here. It's been really, really great to have you. Thank you very much for having me. And that's it for part two and my conversation with Jenna. I hope you found that helpful and enjoyed learning more about the compliance pathway that you might have to use on your project and how to consider these livable guidelines as you design your future home. I love how Jenna talked about what's possible and that these updates actually offer us the opportunity to improve the way that everyone lives, to create more inclusive buildings, including the homes that we live in every day. And that, as I know, is often thought by designers and clients alike, including these choices won't necessarily mean a compromise in aesthetics or performance overall. Now, that also marks the last episode that I'm currently planning in my National Construction Code series. It has been an epic series with 17 episodes in total and an incredible wealth of knowledge, experience and expertise that's been shared as well. I want to say a huge thank you to all the incredible guests who have come on and shared so generously. We have covered a huge range of topics with loads of actionable information to help you create a healthy, high-performing, thermally comfortable, durable, livable and long-lasting home, which is what we all want when we build or renovate, isn't it? 
in the midst of that, you've obviously got to wrap your heads around some of these legislative changes that we're navigating. I hope in the process that it's actually helped you feel less overwhelmed about them. It's demystified what's involved and it's armed you with terminology and ways to discuss this with your professional team. Perhaps it's even got you excited that these type of requirements are becoming legislation. Be sure to review and revisit these episodes as you need to. That is what they are here for. And of course, if anything changes, you know, I will always be looking for information to bring back onto the podcast for you. Now, a few reminders before I finish up. If you'd like to grab a transcript of this episode plus links, then you can find all of that at undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 304 304. Uh, I'm calling out to any like-minded professionals, whatever you do, if you are helping homeowners design, build and renovate their homes and you feel that you resonate with what we teach here on Undercover Architect, I have a community of people who want to know more about you. So please check out the UA Army. It's free to join and you can find out more by heading to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash army. That's A-R-M-Y. And if you'd like to save time, money and stress as you design, build or renovate your home, whoever you're working with, then my flagship online program, Home Method, is definitely the place for you. Home Method is the only place that you can access my personalised support and guidance for your project. You'll also tap into the collective experience of an amazing and super informed homeowners uh, who are in that community and on a similar journey to you. And it's where you will learn the specific steps to take and the decisions that matter in creating a functional feel-good home that you love living in and that makes yours and your family's lives better. You can find out more about Home Method by heading to homemethod.com.au and also to the Undercover Architect website. It's there on the menu. As always, thank you for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally. Until next time, bye. Just a reminder, all content on this podcast is provided by Undercover Architect for reference purposes and as general guidance. It does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. You should seek independent verification or advice before relying on this content in any circumstances, including but not limited to circumstances where loss and damage may result. The views and opinions of any guests on the podcast are solely their own and may not reflect the views of Undercover Architect. Undercover Architect endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or has become inaccurate over time. Thank you.